Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. Taoiseach Micheál Martin has said the pandemic had a swift and unprecedented impact, the largest outside the world wars, as he set out the government's economic recovery plan today. The economic impact of the pandemic was swift and unprecedented. It is the most rapid and dramatic recession recorded outside of the world wars. Our economics correspondent Paul Colgan will join us with the main points from the government plan today with reaction from Green Party TD Nessa Harrigan and People Before Profit TD Paul Murphy. Singer Mary Coughlin discusses her fears for the planned cuts to welfare payments. Executive Director for the Irish Council for Civil Liberties Liam Herrick joins us to discuss the organisation's report looking at the government's response to the pandemic and journalist Geraldine Herbert on why we need to get back to living normal lives. And later, writer and presenter Keith Walsh has quit drinking, but Irish independent columnist Ian O'Doherty celebrated his COVID-19 vaccination with an outdoor pint. So has our attitude to alcohol actually changed? Get in touch on Twitter on our hashtag TonightVNTV. Our economics correspondent Paul Colgan joins us now via Skype. And Paul, the PUP has been cut. The opposition aren't happy about that. The Taoiseach has defended the decision. What have the government outlined today? Well, they've outlined that the PUP will continue to September in its current form. But from September on, what you're going to see is a, a series of cuts from September, November, and then the eventual phasing out the elimination of the PUP payment by February. So in September, whoever's on the lowest payment, which is currently equivalent to Job Seekers Alliance, they will transition to the Job Seekers Alliance. And then the remaining three rates of PUP will be cut by 50 euro each. The same thing will happen in November. Who's ever then on the lowest rate in November, they will transition to Job Seekers and the remaining rates will be cut. And then in February, it will be closed completely. So this is a difficult one for the government to sell in many ways, as has been pointed out, there may well be public health restrictions continuing in many sectors for, for many, many months to come, perhaps until the end of the year, sectors like aviation and so on, yet workers in those sectors may be asked to accept a cut to their PUP. And then there's the long-term game. The central bank has been very clear about this. So have many other economic commentators. In their forecasts, they believe that there will be permanent job losses as a result of the pandemic. So next year, the central bank believes, for example, up to 100,000 people may lose their jobs as a result of COVID-19. Yet under this scenario, they may well end up on Job Seekers Alliance. They would have lost their jobs through no fault of their own. So this is the difficulty the government has in selling this. But they believe that by putting in significant supports for business, 
significant restart grants and so on, that they're doing what they can to save businesses, which will ultimately save jobs, and that they'll be able to minimise the impact through this and also through training of COVID-19. Uh, Paul, there was also a bit of a surprise today, that controversial decision on property tax. What will it mean for homeowners? Yeah, this was a strange one, I think, for many people. This plan had been sold as the National Economic Recovery Plan from last week, and many people would have expected to hear about the boosting in payments and the extension of supports and so on. And the the realisation that property taxes to increase for a great deal of homeowners will have come as a, a shock to many of them. There was this lacuna or this gap since 2013. So anyone who had bought a home, a new build since 2013, and be paying no local property tax, that's to come to an end. But the more controversial aspect is the fact that we had frozen valuations at the bottom of the market in 2013. The government had on a couple of occasions deferred doing anything about that. But now they've said from November, they're going to revalue properties. And in early next year, bills will land, increased bills for up to about 40% of homeowners who will have to pay more property tax. Because if you look at what's happened to the, the housing market since 2013, in Dublin, for example, house prices have doubled since 2013. So there's going to be increases for a great deal many people. The government have tried to soften the blow perhaps by saying that any money you pay in your area will get spent in your area. The money will go directly to local councils. That's the way they've sold it. But undoubtedly, it will be portrayed by many people as austerity at a time when the country is still struggling and still looking to come out of this. And uh, this government plan is going to add another three billion euro, more than that deficit, um, to the coffers. So what will that mean for the budget this year? Well, the Minister for Finance said it would not have any dramatic impact on the projected deficit, the gap in the public finances. He said it was still within the realms of what they had foreseen last year. However, we are borrowing huge sums of money. We have no choice. There was a deficit of 18 billion last year. They expect that that deficit will be the same again this year. So it's not throwing government plans askew by any means. We're receiving about a billion in terms of European monies. The additional 3.5 billion euro that was outlined today, the government has to do that. Countries all over Europe will be doing the same thing. They have to support businesses that are reopening. They have to keep some degree of supports in place for workers who are trying to get back to work or in many cases won't be able to get back to work. So it shouldn't have a dramatic impact. But I think you've seen today is a government now looking at new revenue raising measures. The ESRI has been on its case. The Fiscal Council has been on its case about what they say is a lack of a credible funding plan over the next few years. And now you're seeing a government perhaps going after some low-hanging fruit. That may be something we see more of, considering it doesn't want to go after income tax. We may see more of that over the coming months and years. OK, Paul, thank you for that analysis. Now, here in studio with me is Green Party TD, Nessa Harrigan, and People Before Profit TD, Paul Murphy. I want to come to you first, Nessa Harrigan. Uh, what's the government's decision around the thinking on reducing the pub payment? Because... It seems that you think people who are currently receiving that payment don't want to go back to work. 
Well, first of all, I would completely reject that. And I have seen some commentary around the idea that, you know, people don't want to work and, and you know, students are sitting at home and having a nice summer. And I, and I think that's no, really no, unfair. No, about no, no, that's actually not what I'm getting at. What I'm saying is by reducing the payment, you're saying that people actually need to be incentivised to go back to work. Let's start cutting it from September. We'll cut it again in November. And by the time we reach February, you'll be on €200. Euro. Well, I think the pub was always going to have to be phased out and that was never going to be a pleasant process and that was always going to be a t contested thing. I think my concern is, is less around that issue and more around the idea that, you know, across the EU and certainly in Ireland, we're working on the basis that we're on the other side of the pandemic. And I wouldn't be entirely confident that that's the case. And so I think I would like to see a little bit more language around discretionary um, measures within that because, you know, we're looking at the Indian variant. We don't really know how that's going to impact people. And so I think there is a, an argument around um, the the phasing in, and but it's it's not a cliff edge as it's been described today. You know, it's the the last phase is February 2022. I I think there's a Are larger you question with the decision that was made today and the announcement around it. Well, to be perfectly honest with you, I think there's a larger discussion here around welfare payments in general and whether they're enough. For me, I think. 2,003 euro of, of unemployment benefit isn't actually enough. And we have seen the establishment of a welfare and taxation commission that hopefully will look at that. I think there's a larger discussion, particularly for particular groups that might be, um, you know, lone parents, um, people with disabilities. Are they consistently living in poverty in this state? That's not acceptable. The, the pup was always going to be phased out. It's it's being phased out gradually. Yeah. But there's a larger conversation that we now need to have to ensure that nobody is living long term in poverty. Yeah, and I think I don't think anyone expects the pup payment to be around forever. But as long as we're in a pandemic and people can't go back to the jobs that they were in before the pandemic, the argument is that payment still needs to be there. So removing it in September, is it too soon? Well, it's a phased okay. removal the, the by February of, of 2022. And it will take some people on the lower um, the lower earnings scale, uh, lower payment, it will take them off it altogether come September. Well, I think on the other side, you know, we've, we've tried to put in some measures. So, for example, we've announced the basic income for artists what, which, who are a particularly affected group, um, a, a 10 million fund for students who might be returning uh, to education in September. This isn't a, a necessarily an easy thing to calibrate and get right, but we're going to have to start somewhere as the, the, com the, the country starts to reopen. OK, Paul Murphy, we have to start somewhere. Well, the government is choosing to start by hitting the incomes of those workers who were most affected by COVID, who lost their jobs. And contrary to what NASA says, there is a cliff edge. There's a cliff edge, for example, for students. Students, no matter what rate of COVID payments that they're on, will have all of their income cut on the 7th of September. Um, and that reflects a view, clearly in government, that, oh, this is just money that people have on the side. Whereas, clearly, this is money. These are people who, the only reason they, they qualify is because they were working previously, they have to have been, and now they're losing their income that they may rely what, on to be able to go to college. What do you make of, of like the, the overview today was, yes, look, we are, we are pulling back on the PUP payments, but in line with that, there's going to be retraining, there's going to be additional supports for people, there's going to be uh, sector-specific supports in place so that people aren't going to be you know, staring down the barrel of doom come, come September, coming into the winter ahead. But, but, Would what, you agree with that? Would you accept that there is a, a path forward and there is a plan and it's not going to leave people completely in the lurch? I, I think, unfortunately, it's a plan that is reminiscent of the plan post-banking crisis, 
whereby the approach of the government was to place the burden onto ordinary people in terms of cuts to public services, increased taxes, property tax, household tax, water charges, um, and cuts to people's income uh, while bailing out the banks. So the, the main thrust of the government's proposals are to continue to support uh, businesses. In the case of small businesses, of course, we agree. But look at what's facing ordinary people. You have cuts to income, that's 40% cuts to people who can't, can't afford to take it. You have increases to property tax coming. You have a double rent increase coming in July for many people. So it, on both ends, people are being hit now extremely, extremely hard. Uh, the argument, this isn't recovery, this is austerity. Well, I think we need to be really careful with our language here. And I noticed your previous speaker used the word austerity and and well, in terms of no, no spending cuts in, in related terms of cuts spending that have been cuts that, that today. no, no, but spending cuts that are are made to appease bond markets. That's the definition of austerity. This isn't austerity. Now we could contest and 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 discuss, you know, whether there are there's no spending cuts in, included in this at all. In fact, um, but I think the other side of the coin to the the pop phase out are those supports for employers. The the continuation of um, the support schemes, the continuation of the wage subsidy scheme, the okay. continuation, the two-year continuation of tax warehousing, the extension of VAT to the tourism industry and the commercial rates waiver. It's so all supports for okay. business though. And, uh, and those workers are, are being cut. Those are supports for jobs. But, but they're those all, are supports for but, jobs. But supports so for businesses are continuing. Supports for businesses are continuing into next year. But if you're a student, you're losing all of your pop on the 7th of Most September. Most people on pop are re continuing to re receive something until something. February 2022. That's a seven month. That's not a cliff edge. That that's a, a slope. But you think it's okay for students to lose all of their income on the 7th of September? There's a 10 million fund put in place. To, so you to think it's you think it's, you think it is okay for them if they're if someone is relying is relying to go back in college to September, they're relying on this income because they work in hospitality, as huge numbers of students do. You think it's okay for well, them Well, look, to I'm somebody who works the fund. whole way through university. I couldn't, nobody was paying for me. I, I, I had to do that myself. So I, I personally wouldn't massively be in favour of cutting pop completely for students. However, I'm very glad to see that okay. there's some kind of compensation funds so that people aren't left in the lurch. Okay, well, look, singer Mary Coughlin is joining us now via Skype. And Mary, it's been a tough 15 months for artists like yourself. You heard the news today about the decision to cut back on the PUP payment from September. What's your reaction as someone who has been relying on this payment to get through the last 15 months? Thousands of uh, artists, actors, um, writers, dancers, musicians, lighting technicians, what have you, have been relying on the pub payment for the past 16 months. And um, we haven't been out on the streets screaming about who opened one week earlier than us. We don't have any date for going back to work. Um, Minister Martin, I know, has been working with the LPSS on, on getting funding out to us. She announced that in April, but nothing has, has materialised so far. Mm. Um, I believe that sometime in June they will make an announcement whereby they will give us, uh, they will give venues some support so that they can employ us. Um, and we can we can work. I don't want to be on the dole. I don't want to be on the PUP. I've had no other income this year apart from the PUP. And how has that left you financially, Mary? What? How is that financially? Yeah. And just give us an impact. It's just been for, horrific. Because there's plenty of people out there who are also watching who haven't been remotely affected by this pandemic, they've stayed in their jobs, they've worked from home. Yes, it's been difficult, but they haven't faced what people in your industry and other industries have faced. So just to give an insight, Mary, as to how tough it's been for you and for others like you. 
It's been very tough for me personally. Um, I don't have huge income. I don't have huge savings. I spent all that on an album. I have a band. I have four guys in the band. I have a sound technician and I have lighting. And they have, they're on pop payments and some of them share houses with four other people and they're living on 35, between 35 and 50 euro a week after their bills are paid. And I mean, their, their only income is music. They love to play music. Normally they'd be out working five, six, seven nights a week, sometimes doing two gigs a night, doing tours with me and other, and other acts, you know, other artists. We have nothing. We were, it was taken away from us and on the, the, the 11th or whatever date it was in, in March. My last gig was the 7th of March. And I had a tour planned, 35 concerts all over Europe and festivals, Glastonbury, everything. And, and it was gone and it hasn't come back. And nobody has given us a date for starting. They're talking about yep. running gigs, like two gigs, one at the Phoenix Park and one at the National Concert Hall. A lovely one down in the Roaching Dove, I believe, a session, a gig in the INEC. And the rest of us still have no, no, nothing, no word from anybody, no concrete plan forward. And we haven't, as I said, kicked up a fuss about it. We have done as we were asked to do. And I am... Um, I know that they're working hard to, mm. to try and sort it out. Okay. And I know it's a pandemic, but we have, we have to have something. We have to. And have announce them today. And that's Oregon talking about language. Be careful of the language you use. Somebody should have been told that to me on Martin today when he should have been careful of the language that he used when he announced that he was cutting us off the pub at the rate of 50 quid a month from September. To say that to people at a time like this, when there is no plan forward for us, is absolutely criminal and insane. And there are people really, really on the edge in my business and in other, in other households tonight. And listening to that kind of stuff is just, it's not acceptable. No. And we have put up with it for too long. Nasa, what do you think of I'm what Mary of is saying there? Well, I think the arts industry have been particularly badly hit and there, there is no easy answer to Mary's, particularly her, her issue around, you know, when can we get back out? Because really, we don't know. Um, but you know, a pandemic is much hope, did it? Well, a pandemic is not necessarily an easy thing to plan through. And the idea that we could give a date, there are, as Mary pointed out, there are pilot um concerts and events happening and it'll be very much a wait and see to you know to make sure that it's safe for people to do so but I think you know it, it is worth pointing out that the number one um, request from the Arts Council was a basic income. Okay. And so and we have tried to deliver that and, and that's certainly in okay. the economic plan today. Okay well uh, the argument is still there and we're, we're hearing uh, Mary articulated so well about the, the cutting of the payment there and the impact it will have on, on her sector but I want to move on now to the local property tax because that was a surprise inclusion um, today. Um, Paul, homes built after 2013 will now be included in this property tax. People are living in homes that were built before then are already paying a tax. The argument being made is now that was unfair and we want to make this equal across mm. the board. That's right. The government is a big fan of equality, uh, equality of misery. So they want to bring down the pup to the level of below the poverty line of 203 euros that those on many social welfare payments, including disability allowance, get. And they want to bring up property tax rates okay. so that everybody gets to pay this the same. This is something but that has been talked about for years. It was, it was brought mm -hmm. up on, on three different occasions and, uh, and rejected. So is there ever a good time to include it? And is there ever a good the, time to announce it? Or would you accept that there has to be a bit of 
equality across the board if you're oh, going to have a local property tax? But, but I'm for equality by getting rid of a local property tax, okay. which is a tax so on the family the home. So, in, in, so in, instead, I think we need to be taxing those who got very, very wealthy through the course of the pandemic. Across the world, billionaires increased their wealth by 60%. Jeff Bezos, the CEO of Amazon, is the best example, going from 100 billion to 200 billion. But Dennis O'Brien in this country increased his wealth by 4 million euros every single day during the pandemic. If we imposed, for example, a 3% wealth tax on the richest 1% of people in this country, we'd raise 3.6 billion euros. Okay. Even the IMF for example, now, is so calling for I a wealth tax I want to bring you in moment. here on this. It was a controversial decision that was made today around the property tax and people will already feel, look, we've had a really rough time of it over the past 15 months and now we're going to be lumped with the property tax and actually the homes are going to be re-evaluated. So it's going to be a lot more well, look, than it was in 2013. The, the point of this plan was to be a medium-term economic plan and the SRI and IFAC and all of those people have been saying to the government, you need to be more serious about medium-term planning. I have to say, I think it's, it's always incredible to me that a party of the left in Ireland, and it's only in Ireland that this happens, would repudiate property taxes. Most wealth in Ireland is held in property. That is a wealth tax. And if we're serious about broadening the tax base, and I actually thought it was unwise. I thought family, it was unwise. Family home tax. It, it's but sorry, Deputy Murphy's not suggesting that we reform the property tax so that it's fairer. For example, pensioners sometimes struggle to pay it. So you have a very expensive asset and you ne don't necessarily have any money in your pocket. And I absolutely um, take that point seriously. Our own policy is site value tax, which would be much fairer. But Deputy Murphy is not suggesting that we reform the property tax so that it's fairer. He's suggesting that we just scrap it. No, we're okay. suggesting we actually tax the property of the rich. No, you just which said isn't you, just you, homes, you, you just said which you wanted to get rid of exactly, it. Exactly, because the local property tax is a tax on every most single home. Most wealth in Ireland but, is held in property. But, but the wealth, but most wealth, wealth tax. most wealth in you Ireland, wealth most tax. wealth in Ireland, NASA, is held by the richest people. The richest 10% control most more than 50%. Most of the wealth in Ireland is held so in property and you don't want to tax that. But let's that. go after the That's property, the yachts, the investment funds, the pension funds of the top the top 1% in this country. They're the ones who have the wealth. The top 10% have to more than 50%. Everything? Do you think that's no, going to I, pay for all the services I, that are required at I, local level? Absolutely not. Let's also tax the corporations. Right? You, you see today, actually, interestingly, the negative effect of the corporate tax haven model for Ireland. Ireland is getting from the EU about 1 billion euros from the European fund. Croatia, which is smaller, is getting 6 billion. Finland, which is roughly the same size and has a bigger economy, is getting more than 2 billion. And the reason for that is because of our leprechaun economics. I completely it's based agree. on GDP. He's completely right. OK, there we'll leave it. That's all we'll have time for. My thanks uh, to singer Mary Coughlin and People Before Profit TD Paul Murphy. NASA Harrigan will be staying with us. And after the break, has the pandemic infringed on people's human rights? Welcome back. Now, the Irish Council for Civil Liberties will this week launch a report looking at the government's response to COVID-19 and how it impacted on people's human rights. Their executive director, Liam Herrick, joins me now here in studio alongside Green Party TD, Nasa Harrigan, and journalist Geraldine Herbert, who joins us via Skype. Liam, I want to come to you first. You're launching this report this week about the government response, about what we did when we faced COVID-19. And while we battled a pandemic, we did put public health to the fore. Uh, did we do so, do you think, at the cost of human rights in this country? 
Well, I think human rights provides a framework for protecting the most vulnerable, even the most extreme circumstances. And what the government has been trying to do since the very beginning is to balance protecting the right to life and the right to health, particularly of the vulnerable in our community. And on the other hand, having restrictions on rights and trying to make sure that they were proportionate, didn't go too far. And I think we've all learned a great deal during the period of time. The government's had to make a lot of decisions very, very quickly. Some things it's got right, some things perhaps not. Um, but what we've done is we've monitored over the whole year, year and three months now, what the impact on human rights was. And what we've seen is the first thing that we need to remember is just how extraordinary the impact on people's human rights have been. We need to remember that for most of the last year, it's been illegal to leave your own home without a reasonable excuse, that the guards have been able to stop and ask you where you're going, where you live, why you're going, on punishment of being imposed with a fine, that it's been illegal to meet members of your own family. It's been illegal to go to church or to take part in a protest or a strike. It's a truly extraordinary situation. And whereas we know that some measures were necessary, I think we need to now have the analysis of if they were always proportionate, and if some people were disproportionately affected, and what we see is that some sections of the population were certainly impacted more both by the disease and indeed by the restrictions. And specifically, you looked at, say, young people and, and older people and how they were affected. Um, tell us in the case of older people, you, you take issue at the handling of cases in nursing homes and also around cocooning of older people. What are your concerns around I think we that see, and the way we handled it all? I think we see both sides there. I mean, certainly the state's obligation to protect life and health. I think we've seen an extremely high level of mortality in our nursing homes. There already has been an expert panel uh, examination of this question, but I think that there will be time and space for further examination by the Oireachtas and by others in the future. Um, of course, the state was dealing with something new, but did it do the right things early enough? And also, I think, did what happened in the nursing home sector expose weaknesses in how we care for older people, how we oversee and manage care institutions and large institutions. I think there's learning there. On the other side, we had a situation for several months where the government clearly gave older people the impression that they were under a legal obligation to stay within their homes, when that was never the case. And I think that's deeply troubling in terms of the rule of law that the government would be suggesting something is law when in fact it's public health advice. And that was a blurring of lines okay. on that issue, but also on the five kilometre limit for exercise, for example, which I think we and, and others have identified. Uh, Nasa, I want to bring you in here and specifically, um, firstly, on that issue around the handling of cases in nursing homes, the impact on, on older people. And it was 15 months ago when this all broke out and we had to deal with something completely unprecedented. But people will look back and say at that time, was that handled properly? Could deaths have been pre prevented there? And is there accountability at government level on what happened and lives lost in our nursing homes? I hope they do look back and I hope we do as a nation have a proper, and I really welcome actually the, the, the work of, of the council because I think it's really important and with the proviso that I don't think that this is over yet and we're not fully on the other side of it, but I do think it's really important that we not just kind of reflect on what happened, but do a really in-depth and comprehensive review of all the measures that we took. What I would say is, you know, it, it wasn't like there, there's you know, 20 different ways to handle a pandemic. There, there was a certain amount of things that could be done within the constraints that we had them. I think the issue around messaging is a really important one because it's something that came up again and again. The confusion around the five kilometre um, restrictions, um, what when you could visit people or not. I hope this is the only pandemic that we ever have. I'm not 
I'm not convinced it is. Okay. Um, and so I think it's worth doing that really serious reflection and ensuring that government is held to account and that if it ever happens again, we do get it right. Okay, let's talk about the messaging. Geraldine Herbert, you've been very critical of that message that we've got recently of think outdoors, think safe, think outdoors, enjoy your freedom with your friends outside this summer because that's the, the safest way to socialise. And yet the finger wagging at the weekend scenes that we saw when young people congregated and the comments from the Chief Medical Officer, Dr Tony Houlihan. What do you make of what he said in that instance and how it triggered this entire response to outdoor gatherings? Um, I, I think, to be honest, while I can totally understand his frustration and nobody could blame him for that, I think the tweet was very um, ill-advised, to be honest, because I think it, there's a big difference between highlighting behaviour that has an impact on public health and um, high moral outrage. And all high moral outrage does is really just inflame social media and Twitter, and it castigates young people as villains. I think prob probably a more constructive tweet might have been to acknowledge that people had been locked down since late December. They had been... That they could, you know, they could um, um, socialise outdoors. They could meet, you know, six people outdoors. Now, it doesn't take a lot for multiple groups of six to become um, a crowd. The issue on Saturday night was not people out in the street. It was not people out drinking. It was high-density crowds. And that could have been prevented quite easily if more space had been made available and that if, if uh, people had not been actually restricted and confined to, to small spaces. That was the big issue. So I think in, instead of, as I said, the high moral outrage, a more constructive tweet would have been to engage with people and not to alienate them. And I think that is a big issue and it is something we have to address for this summer. Generally speaking, Geraldine, over the past um, 15 months, do you feel your human rights have been infringed and impacted by this pandemic and the government response in terms of restrictions, the 5K rule, the extraordinary uh, emergency powers that have been brought in to prevent us, um, to stop our freedoms, essentially? Uh, absolutely, there's no doubt about that. I mean, we have we've given up a huge amount to flatten the curve. That goes without saying. I think it is. It will be very interesting to discover whether or not these were necessary, lawful, and uh, you know proportionate. And I think that has yet yet to be discovered. And I, I would welcome this report for that reason. But I also think as we start to signal our way out of this, and the theatre have been very clear about that. There's also the pub payment is about to be cut in September and phased out completely by February. These civil liberties that we have given up need to be given back, and there needs to be a roadmap for those as well. We need to know when this is over. And I, I fully appreciate that we're not you know, out of this pandemic yet, but we still need to, to discuss you know, when is this going to end in terms of surrendering our civil liberties. Okay, um, when is this going to end, NASA? And I suppose people are just looking for a little bit of hope and knowing that, you know, in whatever time in so many months that we will get our lives, that sense of getting back to a sense of normality. But just on this point, and it's been brought up around the emergency powers that have been brought in, and they have been extended without any dull debate, without any, out any review of those powers. And they are extraordinary powers that can prevent people from leaving their homes and issue on-the-spot fines. Why aren't they up for review now? Well, I actually would have preferred if there had been a debate in the doll. I don't think there's anything to be feared ever from debate. And I think if any issue was ever deserving of it, that, that would be the case. Why can't this happen? Well, I think one of the, the recommendations coming from the council was that any any public health regulations would have a human rights assessment done. And, and I think that that's a fair ask. Um, look, I think we have to be quite thoughtful about how we have this discussion because I'm very aware anyone going in and out of Leinster House is very aware that there's often a large group on the street who are um, anti-vax, 
anti-vaccine, they're anti-mask, they don't want any restrictions, they don't want any lockdowns. And I, I, I have to say, I am a little bit mindful that we don't, you know, kind of create a very divisive uh, discussion around this so that we, we can't um, review what has happened clearly uh, and we give further fuel to a fire that is burning in Ireland. Do you think there is a divide with the public health message now? Well, I mean, look, I saw that criticism and I, in fairness, I was, I was criti criti critical of um, Dr. Houlihan myself. However, what I would say is, you know, he's a, a public health or he, he's the chief medical officer. He will see things through that prism and it's for local authorities and for politicians and for government to answer people. You know, he will say what people should do and we have to answer, you know, within the constraints of what they will do and make provision for that. So I, I, I think that, you know, we have to mediate it through that and negotiate it that way. Liam, what, what do you make of that in terms of um, the public health message uh, maybe coming very strongly to the fore and, and, and triggering that sort of response and then also the decision making about what to do with these emergency powers now when we are still in a pandemic? Well, you see, all of us here, the majority of people in, in the Oireachtas and the vast majority of the public are behind the public health effort. They trust the vaccine programme. We all want the same things. But when we talk about returning to normal, we've got a plan now about businesses opening up. We've got a plan about employment coming back. But what we don't have a plan really at the moment is a return to normal democratic rights. And there's two crucial aspects to that. One is the criminalization of ordinary behavior. Public health guidelines around things like how many people can meet up don't need to be criminal matters. We don't need to have policing of them. And the second one is democratic oversight. What we have going on in the Oireachtas yeah. this week is the Minister for Health is coming in and saying that for the last year, he has had the power to criminalise things that are ordinary life without the Iraqis okay. even looking at them. And, he, and the Iraqis now will be excluded okay. for another five months. You, you say it doesn't need policing, but some would argue, well, it does need policing. It does need to be managed when you look at scenes and, and gatherings that could have implications for public health and there's, for the spread a huge, of the virus. What I would say to Claire is that there's a huge amount of law available to the guards to manage situations. The Garda Síochána and Dublin City Council and the other local authorities manage large events every year for decades. Next week, we were meant to be having the European Football Championships in Dublin. There was meant to be public drinking and eating areas of up to 10,000 people for tournament football managed by Dublin City Council and Garda Síochána. It's perfectly within their gift to manage. I mean, I think Jar pointed it. You know, it's about crowd control, which is easily manageable without necessarily arresting people for public health violations. Okay, uh, Geraldine, I want to bring you back in here. We're ahead of the bank holiday weekend and there's been a lot of talk about, you know, people gathering again and, and enjoying themselves. What would you like to see for the weekend? And then going forward, what would you hope for for the rest of this summer? Um, well, as I said, the big point about Saturday night was it was uh, high density crowds. So we need crowd management. That That's, you know, this is done at festivals and outdoor events all summer. It can be the same, you know, policies or measures can be applied because people, you know, the under 35s, the majority of them are living in shared housing in apartments. They don't have any option but to be on the street when they're meeting people. And that's what an outdoor summer means to them. And it's going to continue to mean that. So therefore, we need to manage that. We obviously need more facilities, but also, I, you know, the opening of outdoor dining on the 7th of June is going to make a big difference, but it's not going to solve the problem. So, I, you know, one thing I don't really want to see is that that's going to be the solution. It's not. We still need to manage crowds. Crowds are going to be an issue and that is going to be the key thing going forward in the summer. But also, um, there, I think messaging is a key thing as well. The government need to get the message clear. There's no point in kite flying and there's no point in leaks. 
you know, messages have to come from one source, Micheál Martin making an official announcement. What's been happening over the last while is confusion between what could might be happening, what isn't happening, and people are hearing something might be happening about that, and they're quite unclear. And while it is the onus is on people to find out all of this information for themselves, people get news in a fragmented way. So I think messaging is key okay. for this summer. We need to know what our responsibility is and the government needs to tell us. OK, we'll leave it there. My thanks to Geraldine Herbert, Nasa Harrigan, Liam Herrick and after the break, writer and broadcaster Keith Walsh on why he's giving up alcohol. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome back. Now, outdoor drinking has been a hot topic in the news in recent days, but has our overall attitude to alcohol changed since the pubs shut their doors? Well, writer and presenter Keith Walsh joins me now in studio and via Skype, Irish independent columnist Ian O'Doherty to discuss this. Keith, I want to come to you first. You gave up drinking 15 months ago at the start of the pandemic. Um, some people may say that's when they turned to drink. Yes. Why did you do this? I don't know. I, I mean, I feel like I'm glad I did now because it was a great time to give up the booze because, you know, you're not meeting anybody. You don't have to, you don't have to have that conversation. You don't have to talk to anybody. about. You don't have to explain yourself to anybody, apart from my wife sometimes when uh, she was on to me about having a drink. But um, I gave it up initially just because I kind of felt like uh, um, I was finishing up an RT. I had a big year ahead of me and I was like, I want to have a clear head. Uh, and uh, that was it, really. I just wanted to have a clear head and I gave myself the challenge of giving up booze for 100 days. And I thought 100 days, oh, that'll bring me up to like Paddy's Day or something, then I can sort of get back on it. But 100 days is like well into April, and I didn't realise that at the time. So I was into April, then the lockdown happened. I was like, mm. definitely no point in me drinking out at this stage. But what was your relationship with alcohol like before that decision to give up alcohol? You said you wanted a, a clear head and a clear mind going into a new job. Was there a problem in that you felt that you couldn't always be at the top of your game 
as long as drink was somewhere in the background. Yeah, probably. Like, I mean, I like drinking, you know, and, you know, I'd have all the drinks, uh, but it would be like Friday night or Saturday night or there might be a day on a Saturday or there might be a day out or a wedding or, you know, there might be a couple of beers on a Sunday. And I just, you know, I'm kind of like a, I'm either this side of the line or on that side of the line. Now, working, I was working on the breakfast show and radio and stuff, so I didn't drink during the week. Mm. But like, you know, come Friday, come Saturday, whatever it was. Uh, and, and the problem was I was able to uh, function I was, I wasn't like, I I wouldn't call myself an alcoholic, but maybe I was, but I was a functioning drinker. So I could still get up with the kids and do the the football thing on Saturday morning. I'd always go to bed at like midnight, but I'd managed to squeeze in a fair few bottles of a Friday night. And I'd always be like, Monday'd be a write-off in that I'd get to work and I'd get through work, but I wouldn't really be doing much. Do you know what I mean? It would just be like, I'd be there in body, but not really in spirit. Do you you miss it now? Uh, I'd have to say no, not at all. Like there's moments where I think like I was listening to a podcast with Tommy Tiernan today and he was talking about whiskey and I was like, oh, yeah, that sounds nice. Just the way he was describing it. So you do have that thing. But there is a sort of a saying where you don't if you if you think about drink, like don't get on the train, don't get on that train, don't do the things that lead you to drinking, you know. Uh, Ian, I want to bring you in here. You're listening to Keith there talking about um, removing himself from alcohol and taking it out of his life. Um in your experience, has the pandemic taught you that you need drink more or that you don't? Or has it changed anything for you in terms of your alcohol consumption? Well, well, I, I, I can't consume alcohol in a pub, um, which is basically what I used to do. I've never, I never really drank at home um, for years. I hadn't had a drink at home. Um, but now I'm reminded of uh, Bill Lanan from the Irish Independent. He actually summed up uh, the whole coronavirus thing brilliantly in terms of the, our attitude towards drink, where he said it's the pandemic rather than the pandemic. Because some people are either going, they're not having any drinks at all, or other people are going, we're having loads because that's all we can do. Um, so we've got into this very sort of binary kind of attitude towards beer. Um, but I don't think we're ever going to get back to the same relationship with socialization um, that we really had before March of last year. I think it, it's interesting that I have friends of mine, like I'm lucky enough, I'm in my 40s. I have a back garden. You know, I can go out for a walk. I'm not cooped up. I'm not going mad. Um, but for friends of mine in their 40s, and we all would have had 20 years of sort of going out and, you know, and a night out could take 24 hours. Um, I think those days are gone. I think for younger people, you know, if I was in my 20s, all I would want to do now is just get out to the pub. And I saw a brief glimpse of it on Friday afternoon um, where there were older people who were being, and I can't believe I'm even calling myself an older person, but there were older people who were being very sensible and very socially aware, socially distancing and stuff like that. And you could just see all these kids in their 20s who were just like puppies who'd just been allowed out for the first time all year. Do you think the Irish pub culture is going to change then? You're saying older people are now, like, looking on and and maybe, you know, leave it up to the kids, leave it up to younger people to go out and go to the pubs, that maybe 15 months of being indoors has changed our attitude and our need to go out to the pub and meet our friends. Well, we're creatures of habit. And the habit for the last 15 months has been that you can't go to the pub. Um, like I, I'm actually I'm surprised at myself I think one of the things we all need to do is actually take a step back from ourselves and look at how we're responding to all of this like I'm actually amazed that the thing I miss the most 
is actually going for a meal with my wife in a restaurant. It's not going to meet my mates in the pub, which I used to do pretty much every day after work. Um, and things kind of change and move on. I really miss gigs. I really, really miss gigs. That's the thing I really want to get back into doing. But the one thing I would say is that like all the, the apparent carnage and chaos um, down in South William Street over the weekend, um, and I was through the city centre on Friday, I don't blame those people for going out at all. What I blame is Owen Keegan, and what I blame is Dublin City Council for not providing... If you don't provide the basic amenities, if you tell people you can go out and you can have your takeaway pints, but by the way, there's no bins and there's no toilets. Um, what do you expect? But devastation that we're seeing. And it's like, it, it, it's a, this is a real reminder. I think most of us are done okay. with COVID. Okay, yeah. Um, um, and, and certainly there, there is that sense out there, but it is still with us. Keith, I just want to ask you just on the uh, issue of all the outdoor drinking. Uh, Ian touched on it there. And I think Dublin City Council said, look, we are putting bins in place and the amenities mm. will be in place for this weekend and, and right around the country with other councils. But do you think outdoor drinking, has that shown, you know, our drinking culture to be maybe problematic, do you think? No, I don't think so. I think that uh, it was it was expected. We dealt with it badly. I think that uh, we can't put our ha head in the sand anymore. Uh, we, I, I felt like the the young people, the young people were the, were going to be the scapegoats, and that was all going to be fine once they put the young people in the videos of the car the carnage uh, online and on, on on the TV that they were going to get the blame. But then people said, "No, hang on a second. You should have seen this coming. You should have, you yeah. know, there should have been. There's plenty of people who arrange things like festivals that could have been employed that aren't employed at the moment that could have organised stuff." And for, it's for interesting life. as well because um, a recent report on our alcohol use in this country has shown that actually alcohol sales and off licences hugely went up, obviously because pubs were closed, but drinking uh, increased and increased hugely in the home as well. That probably won't come as any surprise to you. No, and I suppose that's what else are you going to do, I suppose? And, and the thing about, you know, if you had to get up and drive to the office, you might be a bit more careful about how much you drink at home. But I do think that that we've sort of maybe, uh, Ian mentioned like the habit, but we've broken the habit. And I think, like, I'm looking forward to the pubs being open. I'm looking forward to getting into a beer garden with my friends. I won't be drinking, but I'll be, I'll be there. I think you'll find that difficult because you gave up alcohol when pubs weren't open. Hmm. So in many ways, you know, the, the temptation may not have been there for you. And you went 100 days without drinking and then continued yeah, and we kind of we had that in the bubble that we've all been in. Yeah. But when the pubs reopen now and the festivals are back up and running, <laughs> you say you can't can't wait to get back to gigs. Do you think you'll find it tough then? No, I'm looking forward to going to festivals. I'm looking forward to my first sober festival. I'm looking forward to going to pubs. I'll be the first one there. I'll be the last one to leave. I'll be driving people home. I'm looking forward to it. I've managed, and I think this is a thing that we need to do as a country. I've managed to separate socialising and booze. And they don't have to go hand in hand. They can if you want, mm. but that's what we need to do as, as a country is separate those two things. And it's okay to go for a coffee, have a cup of tea and just like, just have a, an adult conversation yeah. about the is whole thing. Is it okay to do that, Ian? I know you celebrated your vaccine uh, with a pint. Well, it's, it's the Irish way. Um, and I'd actually said that I wouldn't have anything to do with takeaway pints until the pubs actually opened. But look, I mean, no, the thing is, like, he's right. It's like, Drink can be your best friend or your worst enemy. And I think in the last 15 months, it's really clarified things for an awful lot of Irish people that they either want to, you know, they're happy to carry on with the habits that they had, or some people just go, no, they've gone straight edge. Um, and I think we're going to walk out of this in a very different environment. Like, as I said in the piece in the end of today, um, we're winning the war. Let's just assume we're winning the war 
against COVID. And I hate that phrase, you know, because, you know, a war. Uh, but the peace that we're looking into will be very interesting. And I think it's really going to utterly change how Irish people socialise. I think suburban restaurants and suburban bars will probably do quite well out of this. But I think the idea of people going out to the usual sort of Dublin thing of pub, restaurant, club um, in the city centre, I think, and I worry for those establishments because I think that might have actually changed. Okay. Well, there we'll leave it. That's it from us. My thanks to Eno Doherty and Keith Walsh for joining me tonight. Our programme is available as a podcast and our next news is on Ireland AM tomorrow morning. Matt Cooper will be here at 10 tomorrow night from all the late team here, though. Good night. Take care. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series.